This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned books and books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary, with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over-the-backyard-fence kind of conversations, the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. Uh, you know, when I, when I contemplated this conversation, I was just hoping up, hoping that I could keep my energy up to match <laughs> the amazing energy that you have. But I thought I would start with something. I mean, you guys are very, high, very much connected. You've written these two novels. They're both by both of you. Maika and Maritza, it's hard not to understand that the names are even very similar. And you have this wonderful, wonderful sibling relationship, at least on the surface. But I, I thought a good way of getting listeners maybe to know a little bit about each of you is to have like Maika introduce Maritza and Maritza introduce Maika. I love um, <laughs> And I would love that to happen. And you can, you know, do it as granularly as you want. But let's start with Maika introducing Maritza. Oh, I'm like, should I act like Maritza? Hi, I'm Maritza Mouli. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm Maika Mouli. I'm introducing Maritza Mouli. Maritza is the second of four women. I'm the oldest of four. And she is currently a PhD student at the University of Pennsylvania, and she is pursuing her PhD in education. She has a concentration or a focus in, um, oh, 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 I feel like I'm playing a, a game show. Uh, she has a concentration or focus in uh, reading, writing, and literacy, especially for young uh, children who come from marginalized backgrounds. And she loves K-pop and minimalism and um, uh, K-beauty and, and yeah. So I think I think I'll stop there because I can keep going. I can keep That's going. That's well done. That <laughs> is really. I should have you from from now on. I just should have you introduce you know interview each other for the <laughs> podcast. Um, all right, Maritza, tell us about Maika. Wow, so much pressure. Okay, no pressure. Hi, I'm Maritza Mulit introducing Maika Mulit, who I call Maika Mulit because I just think it's easier to say. Um, Maika Mayika is the oldest of four women, and she is a Miami native and the daughter of Haitian immigrants. She earned her bachelor's in marketing from, the, from Florida State University, BOO, and an MBA from the University of Miami. And when she isn't using her digital prowess to you help nonprofits. <laughs> I have to interrupt. She's cheating. <laughs> Anyway, she's sharpening her skills as a PhD student um, at Howard University's Communication, Culture, and Media Studies program. And she loves young adult books, strong female leads, and laughing. I did not look at that. It's fierce female leads. I've evolved strong. Oh, you're right. You're right. You're right. <laughs> fierce female leads. The end. And we're sisters, if you couldn't tell. <laughs> I think we could tell. So, Maika, did she leave anything out? Did Maritza leave anything out? No, I mean, my sisters are always teasing me about this because they're like, Maika, you mention this all the time. We see it, but I'm bald. She's bald. <laughs> She's bald. She's a bald Sagittarius. Yeah, but she looks so beautifully bald. I mean, you remind me of Ayanna Presley, you know, uh, the senator. Yes, yes, yes. 
someone I admire a lot. And, and uh, uh, Maritza, did, did Maika leave anything out? She got the major highlights. I don't know if she mentioned my love of BTS, but that's, that's developing, so it's fine. Thank you, Maika. Wonderful well, I, job. I want to know what K-beauty is. I know what K-pop is, but what's K-beauty? It's exactly what you think. It's Korean beauty, like skincare. Ah, yeah. Cool. Cool, yeah. cool, cool. No, no, it's really amazing. But what you both left out is that you've written... I oh, yeah. <laughs> you both have written two amazing, amazing books. The first one was Dear Haiti, Love Elaine. And then the new one that's just out now is called One of the Good Ones. And I'm going to embarrass you horribly by reading something that was in Kirkus that I think you know about. And, you know, you don't read a lot of books, a lot of reviews that are quite like this. So you should feel very proud of this. And this is Kirkus. Through brilliant storytelling, sharp dialogue, and flashbacks, the narrative becomes a story within a story. As Kezi delves into her family history, beginning in the late 1930s, her research sets the stage for a present day trek inspired by the Negro Motorist Green Book, a guide that helped Black American travelers say, stay safe during the Jim Crow era. This novel, the second collaboration by the sisters behind Dear Haiti, Love Elaine, is an explosive look behind the hashtags at race and history, taking readers on a road trip mapped by love and grief. And the review ends, close to perfection. Pretty amazing, huh? Close to perfection. That's fancy. So, That's fancy. Listeners can't see me cheesing, like smiling, all 32 teeth out. But yeah. You are, you are. And that's, that's the new book, one of the good ones. Tell, tell us a little bit about the background for it and how it came to be. So um, the story for one of the good ones, it basically arose because we had our great aunt who passed away um, uh, some years ago now. And when we were at the cemetery, you know, our whole family, we were walking around and we were going through the mausoleums and we were looking at some of the people who have since passed on. And as we were looking through all of the names, we came across Trayvon Martin's name. And, you know, in that moment, it, even though we were going through such personal grief, we could not deny the fact that Trayvon Martin's story was a story of our Miami, of so many countless people who live here and because of their black skin and not just in Miami, but across the world who are persecuted because of that. And we held that in our hearts because he very much was like some of the people that we have grown up around, right? So we held that in our heads. And then when we decided that we wanted to sit down and write one of the good ones, we decided to pursue it from a different perspective, particularly looking at racial injustice through the lens of a young woman character. Um, and she is grappling with the idea that she might not be one of the good ones, even though she spent her whole life trying to create this persona for herself. And um, it's just really interesting how things that can be on such a national level in terms of discourse can impact you personally or in your community personally and I think because we live in this like really global news society sometimes it feels as oh this is just a news story happening on the news but this is happening to real people and sometimes right people who are right from where we are right seeing them in that graveyard brought it home that yeah. 
it, it could be anybody. Tell me a little bit about the meaning of the title, One of the Good Ones. Where does that come from? So our first caveat is that we are actually terrible with titles. And even when we sold this book a few years ago, it was called the Untitled Greed Book Project or something. And we still label everything in our emails like the Greed Book book. Um, but our editor very uh, smartly pointed out that like we pointed, uh, we used the phrase one of the good ones a few times in the story and she suggested that as a title. And we thought it was perfect because that phrase or phrases like it are often used um, to kind of excuse certain people as part of the narrative, the larger narrative of Black people. Like if you are a fancy person with a special degree who went to a certain school and has a great job or makes a, a certain amount of money or speaks a, a type of way, then you're one of the good ones and you don't count as part of this larger group. And we wanted to uh, dissect that idea and point out that there is no such thing as one of the good ones. And something that often happens um, to Black people in the media when they are um, unjustly killed um, at the hands of the police, for example, people tend to ask, oh, well, what did they do? They had to have done something. Like, uh, were they speaking rudely or uh, had they ever been suspended in school? Or, and they, they, there's always some type of reason that you come up with. And, um, you know, we like grew up um, trying to uh, lead a certain type of life and present ourselves in, in a specific way. But the more we live our lives and, and, and and accept this fact is that there is no such thing as one of the good ones. Like you have to fight for the right for every single person, every single black life to exist. Um, and that's it. Most definitely. And in fact, it must put it in sharp uh, contrast with what just happened last week, right? You know, imagine, you know, a Black Lives Matter protest happening on the steps of the Capitol. Uh, I don't imagine that people would have gotten through the gates and the doors alive, let alone, you know, uh, uh, being permitted to, to even walk through the door. So, you know, I, I think you're right. I think what happens is that, and I think what you're driving at is that people, people tend to create division within groups in order to, you know, divide and conquer kind of thing. That's my dog, by the way, which is a little bit of cinema verite that we have. We have a, that's, you might that's, hear ours. That's Alonzo that we named after Alonzo Morning. He's a amazing. Boxer. He's a boxer. He's a great guy, and he, the, the mailman must be coming or something. Um, Alonzo agrees with our conversation exactly. I'm sure that he would. So you wrote this when you the idea came when you saw Trayvon Martin buried, but that happened many years ago, and you've been writing this book. I assume a couple, for a couple of years now. So what was it like to experience 2020 with the idea that you've just explored so much of what we uh, discussed during this past year? Yeah, uh, it was honestly very uncanny. It was very unsettling. Um, we set out to write one of the good ones two years ago. So over two years ago now. So by the time that we had finished with the story, one of the things that Maritza and I have discussed is the fact that Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and so many other people like them were alive when we started writing our story. 
And one of the good ones is about this 17 year old turned 18 year old social justice activist who ends up dying under mysterious circumstances while attending a social justice rally. And then her sisters, Happy and Jenny, embark on a, a journey using the Negro Motorist Green Book as their guide. And in order for us to sit down to write one of the good ones, we knew that we had to take a look at the past because you can't have conversations about racial injustice, racial equality, inequality in the United States without taking a look back. And as we were going through this process, our characters in our book were also going through the process because they are living in the contemporary modern day, but then we have their family members who are in the past and we use it as a parallel. And sometimes, you know, because of the way that publishing works and because it takes so long, folks might think, oh, you were just writing this during the summer and then the book was published. And it's like, no, this was written way in advance. Um, but one of the things that we had to do when we were going through the final editing process is when we were in our author letter and we had to go back and include the names of some folks who had been killed and brutalized and that is a, a feeling that never gets normal um it's it's really uh, an emotionally fraught experience like writing this book and learning about some of the history of this country and so much of what we don't learn in schools it it stays with you, it, it weighs on your shoulders and you think about the legacy of yourself and the book that you write. So, and especially in this larger context of what's happening in the country and honestly the world right now, it feels heavy and lofty, but maybe it's because I'm an optimist. I feel hopeful. It feels like there could be a catalyst for change if folks don't start patting themselves on the back too early and saying, okay, we've done what we had to do. Maritza, do you feel that same thing? Yeah, it has been, it is a strange feeling to have to go into um, your author's note and type in additional names of people who have died. And it's like the names come to mean so much more than the names. I mean, obviously they're human beings, individuals, people that we never knew, you know, we, we didn't know Breonna Taylor and we didn't know George Floyd, but their loved ones did, you know, they carry those memories with them. And now these individuals are part of this wider national collective memory. Um, and this book was just our, our, our piece of trying to acknowledge that, to acknowledge a humanity that has been lost and it is very difficult to, to you know, to, to think about that. Um, but it just isn't, it's just so apparent, like Mika said, that like, this is a continuous issue. It's a continual problem. Like, it doesn't matter if we wrote this book in 2021 today, or if we had sold it in 2019 or whenever we had sold it, like this, this problem, continues to persist. And unless we are trying to keep repeating history over and over again, we're going to have to do things differently as a country. Well, I think you're absolutely right. And, and I think one of the things you bring up in the book is a whole idea of allyship and what a real ally is. Talk to me a little bit about that. You know, when we set out to write this book, we, it, it just kept evolving, right? So we knew that we wanted to focus on a young Black girl but then as the conversation, or I guess as we started writing, we felt like the conversation was shifting a little bit and looking at allyship. So one of the main forms of allyship that is discussed in the book is how 
maybe somebody who isn't black is an ally to someone who is. And the title, one of the good ones, comes from that idea. It's the fact that even well-meaning people will use this phrase or phrase like it to show that I am with you and I know you're one of the good ones. But then that conversely means, or similarly means, that you're saying the rest of my race, really, are not one of the good ones. And I am this anomaly. And it doesn't benefit anyone. Because you know I just finished reading um, Hood Feminism by Mickey Kendall, I believe. Mm. And one of the things that she says in there is that respectability is not going to save us. And we know this because what is more respectable than sleeping in your home, home, playing in a park, going for a run, all of these different things that we should be able to do as Americans. So I think if somebody is concerned with being an ally, they need to understand that there are going to be times when you might mean well and you will still get it wrong. Or you might mean well, and maybe you didn't get it wrong, and you're met with maybe some friction because of past instances, and people are trying to grapple with this in real time. But I hope that when someone finishes reading one of the good ones, they will consider what it is that they do when they call themselves an ally and then only elevate certain types of people, right? It's like, who are you an ally for? And um, another aspect of allyship that we have in one of the good ones is Kezi, one of our main characters, she's a lesbian. And I would say the majority of her family doesn't know this because she has this idea that, oh, I'm a, you know, both of my parents are pastors and preachers and I can't be out. So she goes through her life kind of hiding that. And then as the story evolves and the youngest sister learns this, she starts to grapple with the idea that she wasn't a good ally to her sister because they would sit in the same church pews and hear the same messages and she never said anything. And does it have to take you having a family member, you having a loved one, you having a classmate or a student for you to see the person's humanity? I don't think it should. I think you should see this is a human being and for that reason, they matter. I, I think at the heart of what you, you both of you are about is the whole notion of empathy, right? I mean, we all have to be able to walk in each other's shoes and understand our own faults and overcome them and our own biases and all of that sort of thing. The thing that really is so heartening for me uh, and was in 2020 were the amount and the types of books that were being sold, you know, in the wake of George Floyd, in the wake of Breonna Taylor, that people were trying to understand. It was as if a bandage was ripped off of a national, you know, a wound that had never really been dealt with. And I can't remember a time in my own life where there is more frank discussion about what, about the promise of this country and the failings of this country have been. And I also read something very interesting about you both. One of you said at one point, uh, or I read about it, that also being Haitian American is very interesting because this was not necessarily something that you had learned familiarly, you know, in terms of your own history as, as the hyphenated American part of it. How did the synthesis of that begin to take shape in your lives? The Haitian, the American, particularly being in South Florida, where there's a very large Haitian community. Growing up, Oh, I was going to say growing up, we were Haitian American. We still are. So um, as you said, we're Haitian American. And growing up, um, our community 
often tried to ensure that you were putting your best foot forward, your best face forward, because you were representing your people. You're an immigrant. You got to come in there and prove that you deserve to be here, you know, and you didn't want um, anyone to speak poorly of you or, or say, oh, look at this black person doing something wrong. And this is the type of, um, idea that we're pushing back against like we're, we're not trying to be one of the good ones we're all yeah. just ones you know um so that is something that we definitely had to um uh kind of decolonize our minds from um if you can say um and also something about your empathy piece that's uh that reminds me of something is that i remember reading somewhere that um you like you shouldn't there's a saying that says treat people the way you want to be treated but the saying really should be treat people the way they want to be treated and that has really stayed with me because it's true like we shouldn't be um looking at people through our own lens and perspectives of who they are we should see people for who they see themselves as um and and that is another aspect that we try to bring out in one of the good ones and i will say that i mean i've only been around since the 90s but just it has been extremely heartening to see the the, the calls for justice that has gotten so much louder over these past several months um, and, and the way that so many people who haven't been paying attention before, like, decided to go out and educate themselves, you know, um, but I really just want to, I wish there was a way to ensure that the people who bought those books read the books. The people who read the books have friends who actually experience the things that are happening in the books you know like the the conversation does not stop after the summer i feel like we're going to reach this point where we're talking about the summer of 2020 when we couldn't go anywhere so we all watched what happened on tv together you know like it, it has to go beyond that and that is something that i wish that i could scream from the rooftops like our work is nowhere near finished but good job on starting no, you're absolutely right. I mean, the dialogue, I mean, we're, we're now a few days away from what I hope will be a hopeful transition into something very new and something different. And, and you know, I, I, you know with, with Kamala Harris being our vice president, with the kind of people that I see that are moving into the administration, that I'm hoping, I mean, we are, we are certainly, there's about 30 or 40% of this country that believes in weird, strange stuff that I don't know if we're ever going to ever going to be able to uh, change those beliefs. But I think when we all begin to understand the commonality of the issues, the commonality of the problems that we all have, it's my hope that people will listen to your voices and the voices of younger people. And that is really what it's going to take. And what I'm blown away by, actually, is that you're dealing with these really wonderfully sophisticated ideas, but you make them so readable. And, 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 and they're for young adults, and they're young adults who just love them. And you have a mystery embedded in this one, and where you're teaching people about the, uh, the Green Book, uh, which I had sort of knew about, and the, the kind of, what are they called, the, the nighttime cities, 
the uh, Shade Sun City. Sundown towns. Sundown towns, where people of color were not permitted after a certain time. There's that movie that's out right now called One Night in Miami, which I highly recommend. You know, I grew up in my, I grew up in Miami Beach, and you know, uh, Muhammad Ali won his fight on Miami Beach, and yet he wasn't really able to stay there, and Sonny Liston wasn't either, and uh, and it was just it's kind of amazing that we've we kind of normalized it and we lived it and it was it seemed normal, and it's not and never was and never should be, and I think that young people give me as uh, as one of as as an older person who is able to get a vaccine, it gives me hope. <laughs> you know, I'm that old that I can get a vaccine now. <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> talk about growing up in South Florida as well. I mean, and talk about some of the mentors that you've had. I know that, you know, that Brad Meltzer has been a big mentor to you, and I wonder if you've identified with other. Uh, writers, uh, people like Edwidge Danticat and others. Are those people who have meant something to you as you grew up? Yeah. You're stealing our answers. <laughs> no, 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 I want you to, I want you to, I want you to expound on them. Yes, of course. So, um, yes, we have, we're, you know, we kind of came into the publishing industry in this really weird way. There was a social media contest and we were just like, oh, we're going to try to do this. And so we entered and we got a lot of feedback and we ended up not signing with any agents from the experience, but we got such good feedback that we were able to revise and resubmit. So we were, you know, we ended up um, choosing our agency. And then when it came time to publish the book, we, um, you know, had a, I guess an auction. And then finally we were with Inkyard Press, which is an imprint of HarperCollins. And the crazy thing is Maritza and I, we went through this entire process really not knowing what we were doing. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't know what we were doing. And then we landed this book deal for Dear Haiti, Love Elaine. We went through the entire editing process with our editor. Um, you know, it's just been uh, uh, honestly a really wonderful experience, especially as a Black author, having a book like Dear Haiti, Love Elaine be our first novel. And then once Dear Haiti, Love Elaine was done and we were starting to publicize about it, um, E.B. Zaboy really was just like, oh! Haitian American authors, I am going to shout about this book from the rooftops. And we had not met her. And she literally purchased the book. She, I believe she ended up having an arc. She, um, she blurbed the book. Like she was talking about it with anyone and everyone. And then there was another instance where I went to, um, I think it was actually the Little Haiti Book Fair. And I knew Edward Jesse Cat was going to be there. So I was like, oh my God, I got to see her in real life. So I snuck in and it was like for small children. So they're reading the picture books and I'm just sitting in the back with my friend sweating because I'm like, oh my gosh, she's right there. So then afterwards I go up to her and she's like, hey, you're my lead. I'm almost done reading your book. I almost passed out. <laughs> I was a mess. I was like, oh my gosh, this is great. So Edwards Jesse Cat has been awesome. She came to our book launch in Miami at Books and Books, which was she brought her whole family. like Her whole family. <laughs> it was wild. And then, um, and then Maritza also got the idea for Dear Haiti Love Elaine. She was like, oh my gosh, you know, Brad Meltzer went to our high school. We should reach out to him and say, we've published our first book. And honestly, seeing you come to our school, which he did many years ago and was able to donate some copies of his book, The Tenth Justice, 
And Maritza was like, we should email him. So we did. We sent him this email saying, hey, we went to your school. We have our first book published. Here it is. We'd love for you to come to our launch event. And we were just like, all right, our work here is done. Brad Melter is a busy man. He is not going to get back to us. And not only did he get back to us, he sent us a, a video back. And he was like, this has made my month, my year. This is amazing. And we've just been really blessed with these people who have opened their arms so widely and embraced us and have just been so open to give us advice. And Brad Meltzer, I joke, I'm like, he's like, you know, those old uh, trench coat, the big long trench coats with the watches inside. Like Brad has that for us, but it's one of the good ones in Dear Haiti Love Elaine. <laughs> like he talks about our books with anyone who will listen. <laughs> no, Brad, Brad and Edwidge are two of the most generous people that we have in South Florida. And did you go to high school here? Did you go to high school in South Florida as well, right? Yes, North Miami Beach. North Miami Beach. You two are kind of spectacular. So I want to know you know, some parenting tips from your parents <laughs> as to how they created these amazing, <laughs> poor, brilliant girls. How did that happen? That's hilarious. What did they do? Oh, gosh. What didn't they do? Okay. So <laughs> I think hmm, probably rule well, number one for them would be the fact that they wouldn't let us watch TV on the weekdays because they are mean. So all we could watch on the weekdays were... Wheel of Fortune, Jeopardy, and the local and evening news. And we still watch all of those. Like, it's just embedded in us now, wherever we are. But um, yeah, so we were really aware of the world, but did not know what was going on in like pop culture-y things. Like our peers would talk about a show called South Park. <laughs> We'd be like, uh, yeah. <laughs> Or The Simpsons. I had no idea what that was. It was really bad. But yeah, um, like, yeah. you know Peter Jennings. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so no TV on the weekdays. Oh, we spent every weekend, every Saturday at the library. We'd go to North Dade Regional um, every weekend and check out like 30 books each. So with the four of us, we'd come home with like 120 books and then I would lose many of them and then everyone would yell at me. But when I didn't lose books, um, we would all read them and, and we just fell in love with all of those different stories. Would have loved to see more people who look like us and had our background, but even with the different um, characters that we had who were like best friends in our head, like it, it was enough for, for that to spark this lifelong love of books in, in any form. So I think they would say number one and number two is the no TV and the reading. I don't know. Maybe they throw in some church, but I really well, feel like it's definitely was, yeah. the church was for discipline. Like our dad was in the army. So yeah. he would literally wake us up and be like, Hut, two, three, four. And we're like, oh God, this is terrible. So obnoxious. <laughs> it, was, um, it was terrible. But, uh, but yeah, no, they, they honestly, we could give them their props now because we're adults. But let me tell you, when we were younger, woo! not fun. Yeah, well, I can imagine. But you want to read a little bit? Okay. Yes. Chapter one. Happy. Thursday, July 26. Three months, nine days since the arrest. Chicago, Illinois. She was mine before she was anyone else's. All mine. Partly mine. Now she belongs to you and them and shirts and rallies and songs and documentaries. They say she had a bright future ahead of her. And she was a star whose light burned out too soon. She was going to make a difference. That's all true, 
but it's not the truth. Kezi was more than her brains and her grades and her voice. She was more than her future. She had a past. She was living her present. She could have been mine. Should have been mine. She was my sister before she became your martyr after all. Even as I sit as still as a lion stalking her prey, inside I'm racing. My mind is buzzing with the thoughts I don't say. My heart is knocking erratically against my sternum and is always one beat away from bursting through my chest. I should be used to it. But you never get used to strangers sliding their arms over your shoulders in solidarity to apologize for something that isn't their fault. Not when Kezi being gone doesn't feel real to begin with. How can it? When I didn't get a chance to see her face one last time before they incinerated her body and put her essence in an urn. My parents are already inside the auditorium, seated in their place of honor in the front row. I will join them eventually, but not until the millisecond that I have to. When everything went down, we made an agreement. I will play along and be a cheap carbon copy of the daughter they lost, a constant reminder to the world that she was one of the good ones. But before the lights shine on us and cell phones are trained at our brave, heartbroken faces, I will be me, the prodigal daughter. Oh, that's beautiful. Beautifully done. Which leads me to a question that I did not ask, which I should ask, which is, how did you come to write together? How did you come to write as two sisters? I've been trying to think of the answer to this more because we usually say, a few years ago, we're like, let's try it. And that's what happened. But I think it was because, like, I had just graduated with my master's in journalism and I didn't want to do journalism. And uh, in that moment of like trying to figure out what I was going to do, like I was freaking out. Maiko was freaking out because she was like also, you know, recent college grad and striking it out on her own with like a small business thing. And we were just kind of miserable and also like full of dreams. So it, it was like in a moment of desperation that we were like, you know what? We've always wanted to be writers and we have never actually sat down to write anything successfully alone because we always get distracted and don't follow through. Let's see if we could do it together. And then we started outlining and talking and it worked out. And I, I, I'm so happy that I stopped to actually really remember what it was um, that made us work together. Yeah. I think by then my business was, I had closed my business. So I was in corporate setting and I was like, oh, I do not like corporate life. And so <laughs> we decided to write together. That's wonderful. That's a great answer. I'm glad you thought about it and you came up with a really great answer. In essence, you took the road less traveled, right? It's, yeah. Uh, you know, I, and I respond to that really well as a bookseller. I did the very same thing. I graduated college as an English major, didn't know what to do, went to law school for a little while and then said, I'm going to open a bookstore. Like, who's going to do What is that? <laughs> you know? I love that. Did you have pushback, you know, from your parents at all? You know, a lot of a lot of parents, immigrant parents, you know, they, they view their their kids doing professions, you know, being doctors, lawyers, whatever it is. Did you have any pushback about that? Yeah. So it's interesting. 
our parents never really enforced this, but our larger community did. So it was doctor, lawyer, engineer, if you're a slacker, nurse, really, that's like the mentality. <laughs> and um, those were really the acceptable career fields. And when I, I remember when I went to undergrad and I was like, oh, I'm going to get a business degree in marketing. I remember my uncle, I'm, I'll tell you which uncle afterwards, he was like, marketing. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, what is a business degree? Go to law school. And I'm like, I don't want to. <laughs> but yeah, but our parents, though, they've, it's, it's this combination of them kind of making sure that we have boundaries because, you know, we're like young women growing up and they totally were, you know, I'm sure worried about the world and society that we were growing up in and trying to protect us. But they also, in raising us, created four women who are okay with pushing back sometimes. And we were very blessed that our parents were just so supportive. I think they felt like it was a natural uh, progression because we had read so many books, we've gone to school like a lot, and now we decided to write books. So they were totally welcome. Um, they, they totally welcomed us to do it. And in fact, they were like our biggest sales people. Like our dad would be like, I'm gonna take this to your uncle's house so I can show off, gotta go. <laughs> no, that's great. That's really a great story. You guys are fearless. You are fierce and you are strong and you are brilliant. And I think we're going to hear your voices for years and years to come. And I can't thank you enough for being part of the literary life. Mitch, thank you. Oh my you. gosh. Yeah, I'm going to like, oh, this is, I'm so excited and touched. This is awesome. Thank you so much.